Welcome back to the Salty Talks podcast. This is your go-to podcast for information about the aquaculture sector in Maine. So today I'm here with Matt Hockyard, who is the Assistant Extension Professor and Finfish Nutrition Specialist. Uh, wow, that was hard to say. Um, <laughs> I've been practicing. Uh, at UMaine's Aquaculture Research Institute. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to Matt to introduce himself more. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and thanks for having me here on your podcast. Uh, really excited to be here at the IMRC recording today. Uh, I'm a new, relatively new professor here at the University of Maine. I've been here about a year and a half. Uh, I'm, I have a joint appointment with the Aquaculture Research Institute and then UMaine's Cooperative Extension. So I have this really uh, fun and interesting job where I'm able to, well, I've, I'm working on themes regarding finfish nutrition and, uh, and per specifically within aquaculture. So things like trying to solve, uh, or not solve myself, but solve as a, as a collective uh, challenges that we've got with, you know, uh, fish meal usage. Currently the industry uses a lot of fish meal and fish feeds, and those are from wild capture fisheries. So, you know, one thing that I'm working on is, is looking into alternatives for those fish, uh, those ingredients, things like, you know, soy, soy meal. Um, the, one of my first projects here at university was looking at insect meal as a replacement for fish meal. So, you know, that's one of the themes that we've got going on here. Uh, but I work largely in uh, larval fish nutrition as well. So I'm, you know, I'm trying to grow fish through a really challenging life stage. I think we'll hit on that uh, a little bit later in the podcast. But, but because I've got this joint appointment with Cooperative Extension, largely we're, we're trying to, we're doing a lot of applied research, things that are going to have a positive impact on the industry uh, in the, both the short, near and the long term. Uh, changing the ways in which we um, feed fish, that might be through improved feed technology, through uh, new and uh, innovative ingredients, uh, doing things that improve fish health. Um, so um, really looking at every problem I've got, I, I always come at it looking at it from a nutritionist standpoint, but really trying to advance the aquaculture industry in a very um, concrete way. Thanks, Matt. Um, so as he mentioned, Today we're going to talk about finfish larval nutrition and some of the challenges associated with that. Before we get into sort of the more detailed nitty-gritty of that, I think we should start at more of a bird's eye view of finfish aquaculture in in the U.S. Yeah, so uh, you know, a lot, I spend a good amount of time thinking about uh, saltwater fish, so marine finfish as kind of a group of, of species that we, we often kind of just cluster together here in the United States, largely because we just don't have a big marine finfish industry here yet. So what we do have in the United States at this time for, I'm sure I'm, I'll leave some really important folks out, but the, but the big players uh, are uh, Atlantic salmon. Uh, and so we have a, a pretty vibrant Atlantic salmon industry here in the state of Maine. And, um, and so when I, when I talk about marine finfish, there's this big opportunity, you know, where as an industry um, or as a, as a society, seafood is one of those things that, that we just, um, it's, it's a limited uh, commodity. We're, we're importing a ton of seafood each year. About 90% of what we get in the supermarkets is 
coming from overseas uh, imported. We're in a huge deficit. That number, every time I talk to an economist, goes up. The last number I was throwing around was about $13 billion trade deficit. I think it's well over that now. But so how do we address that deficit? And how do we do that as, as countries are tightening down their own food supplies? You know, you look at some of the uh, things going on globally right now, and countries are really looking at, at their own food stability in the long term. And, and uh, having a healthy source of seafood, of, uh, of uh, fin fish, you know, that's what we mo- mostly eat in the United States. Our top five species are all, uh, well, four out of the five are, are fin fish species. So how do, we, how do we expand that? And how do we do that without further exploiting freshwater systems, which we already know have a lot of competing resource use, you know? Really looking at, at marine fin fish as this opportunity to grow something that people want, they need it, it's nutritious for them, and we can do that in a saltwater environment. We're growing these fish domestically in the U.S. Can you highlight some of the species that we're growing? Maybe some of the species that you've worked on in your research? Yeah, there's, uh, there, there isn't yet like one breakthrough in the United States, I would say, that, that, um, that has really um, become like the marine fin fish that we, that we culture. It's a, it's a very kind of new and evolving industry. In general, we've kind of identified about 19 species of, of marine fin fish of commercial interest in the United States. And these are all being grown for, for food fish purposes or in various stages of development for, you know, for human consumption. So there are other species that we're very interested in growing for things like conservation purposes, ornamental species that we might grow for, um, for use in the hobby industry. And those are, are, are very important areas of research and developing species. But, but for food fish, like for things that people are gonna eat, you know, there's a few kind of leading examples that, that I work with. Um, and one of those is our cereal, uh, but yellowtail or amberjack. Uh, they kind of go by a number of different names. There's four of them that are uh, com- kind of commercially relevant uh, that are all fall into this like broader cereal umbrella. And um, so, you know, we've, I've worked with Cereola uh, dorsalis, uh, working with colleagues down at Hub Sea World Research Institute in San Diego. They've really uh, helped pioneer a lot of that work. They've been working on dorsalis since I think 2003. So, um, you'd know Cereola uh, dorsalis as Cereola, um, um, <laughs> you're gonna hear my piece of paper come out <laughs> because, um, because I always get my cereolas backwards, and that's like a little-known scientific secret about this guy here. But uh, there's a bunch of dis- different cereola that we're interested in as uh, as in the, here in the United States. They all um, they all kind of fall into this like broader amberjack category. So cereola are, are a type of jack. Um, they're a very fast swimming fish. If you didn't really know, and you just walked up to a tank and, and um, kind of looked in and you would you'd guess that they were like a tuna like fish they're really fast swimming um, they've got this kind of crescent shaped tail which is really uh, in a fusiform body meaning it kind of looks like i don't know uh fusiform a good example of that but like an airplane or something like a, like a jet fighter almost they have this very fast looking shape and um and so a uh, torpedo sorry a torpedo would be a good example so that we we largely eat them here in the united states for sushi so that's one of the things that have made them a, a high species candidate species in the united states because in general the a sushi sushi you know per kilo fetches pretty high market value so for um for cereal uh, we've seen prices as high as 27 dollars per kilo that's a head-on gutted animal but that's pretty high for uh, when you compare that to other fin fish species and that's why we've kind of gone after that one early on and you know i think once the technology develops we'll start being able to 
do it for a broader range of species that might not have that really high high end market value. So if you've ever like gone to sushi and had hamachi, uh, hamachi is the um, Japanese amberjack technically. Uh, Kenpachi uh, is where we're talking about al, uh, almako jack or greater amberjack, and then hiramasa is. And I'm sorry, I, I'm my. Japanese is non-existent, so if I'm <laughs> messing that up, you know, just uh, take it with a grain of salt. But that's the uh, yellowtail amberjack, and all of those you'd find them all at the sushi restaurant. And it, here in the United States, we're working on those as well as um, another cereal, cereal dorsalis. Um, so when you are saying that you're finding this fish uh, at the sushi restaurant, is this wild caught fish that we're talking about, or are we talking about um, farmed? Amberjack, but they're farming it in Hawaii, right? And yeah, that's right. So uh, both. So actually, um, we do see there are some wild caught amberjacks that do go to the sushi market, uh, but there's, um, but I think a large fraction fraction of it overseas is is farmed. So when you actually look at the Japanese market, they're they're pretty effectively uh, farming the Japanese amberjack. Uh, here in the United States, we do have um, at least one commercially exist. Uh, sorry, two commercially existing. Cereal uh, of fish farms. So, um, one of those is on uh, in Kona, Hawaii, um, and they're they're largely working on an offshore operation. So they've got a, a land-based hatchery, and then um, so you can imagine when I say a land-based hatchery, this is a place where they they bring in adults. They the fish spawn the eggs in a big tank, and we collect the eggs out of that tank. And these eggs are, are little, so they um, are like a grain of sand. They basically, um, you know, one one adult female might have a million eggs. And this is really what's gotten me interested in, in this kind of area of aquaculture and, and just broadly uh, how I kind of got roped in the subject, just that concept of having this, this amazing looking fish that looks, like I said, smaller, but something tuna-like for those who aren't familiar with the species. And um, and yet the way they, they reproduce is to spread you know half a million eggs into in the ocean. They would just spread it into the ocean currents. Those eggs would float around like seeds in the wind, and hopefully some of them ended up in the right place with the right temperature, and then the right food is the really critical thing. And that's been recognized for a long time as how important food is for these these uh, great populations in, in our world's oceans. But it's uh, similarly, it's just that important in aquaculture settings. So uh, that's really what got me interested in this idea of larval finfish nutrition. But I really digress there. You know, I think um, we also have a recirculating, a land-based uh, facility here in Maine. So, um, so in Hawaii, they have to they have to do the early life stage stuff in, land, in a hatchery, land-based. All pretty much all that's true for all of these species. And then there are different options then. Once you get through the, the early life stages in the hatchery, you can move them out into one of two kind of options. You can either put them out in the ocean in big net pens as they've then matured into larger fish that are easier to keep in, in these uh, large pens. And the other option is once they reach juvenile stage, you can move them into a recirculating aquaculture system from the hatchery. And so these are these are large land-based facilities, and um, and they really um, you know I th I think uh, both of these any system any agricultural or aquacultural system has has benefits and drawbacks. And some of the environmental uh, challenges that we have seen in in some sorts of in uh, you know net pen farming, we're able able to avoid those things in these recirculating systems. So cereal is just interesting in that way. You know we we see these two different models, and both are. Uh, potentially successful ways of going about growing fish, but my focus is really in the, the early life stage. How do we get them through this hatchery phase, which is a big, 
a big bottleneck in the culture. Yeah, this is a pretty good segue into talking about um, your research and also just feeding, I guess, feeding fish in general when they're in a recirculating aquaculture system. Uh, The challenges associated with, you said, you're feeding these like teeny tiny little things that are like so hard to see and what they're eating and... Yeah, so as far as feeding the adults, there will be some differences there. And, uh, and that's probably enough for a whole nother podcast, to be honest. And there's this really, there's a lot of interest in, in how do we, how is feeding fish different from, you know, putting, delivering feed into a, a net pen in the ocean where the food kind of goes through and, you know, um, largely consumed with the, the, fit, the waste products are, are diluted into the uh, water. And then, and some of that does impact the Bentha community, but the waste products are largely being lost through diffusion. And what we do is we try to place our facilities in way, ways that those are gonna have the least amount of environmental impact. So you choose places that have high flow rates to kind of wash that those uh, the waste products from the farm away. The, um, the challenge in it, when you move to a land-based system is that you are now retaining all of those waste products in your system. And so whatever you put in the system, and food is the num- one of the number one inputs, you know, um, what that all turns into something. The fish are, it turns into fish growth. So the, most of that food and fish are very effective at turning food into growth. Some of the uh, most effective uh, among um, animals that we culture. I mean, broadly speaking, when, even when compared to, you know, pigs and chickens and cattle. You know, this, this idea of having them swimming in their own um, in waste products is very challenging. And, th- and that we, the technology is there to clean most of that stuff. And the, and the animals actually have a very high quality of life in these systems. Um, but nonetheless, we have to control the fact, the, uh, the, imp- the input there, the feed, and, and just appreciate that that's gonna impact the system directly. So that, you know, that's a, an area of research that is kind of emergent, is how do, we, how do we look at those two systems differently and how do we solve those challenges? And like I said, I think that's a whole separate podcast that hopefully we, we come back to in the future. But it, feeding fish larvae, uh, is a, is really interesting and uh, its own unique challenge. So we're trying to feed the among the smallest vertebrates on Earth. I mean, I think uh, a tunicate ecologist once commented that there are tunicates out there that are smaller than my precious little fish larvae, but but they are they are really small. So I, I make this kind of really gross analogy sometimes to people that if you're like clipping your your nails into the toilet and you look down into the toilet, you know those clippings. That's that's not much large. They would be a similar size to what looking down into a fish tank and seeing fish <laughs> larvae swimming around. Yeah, sorry, I know that's gross, but but it, like no, really the imagery perfect. there. Yeah, <laughs> I can picture and I, it. And I do love these animals, so uh, you know I don't mean to disrespect them with my <laughs> my toilet humor, but um, <laughs> but yeah. So but and there's there's millions of them. You know they'll like one one female will have several hundred thousand eggs in a tank. And so, you know, you can imagine we're feeding, uh, to my knowledge, well, I don't know, we're, we're at least feeding the smallest cultured vertebrates on earth, save some for something for research, but for actual, uh, for food supply, you know, there's just no real analogy for that. There's no little baby chickens that are going to be smaller than, <laughs> than what we're yeah. dealing with here. And even salmon, you know, people are like, well, we've been doing it with salmon for a hundred years, but salmon have these monster eggs. I know mm-hmm. a lot of people are, know how big mon- these salmon eggs are. And we measure salmon eggs in, um, well, and in, in they're whatever, sorry, I guess I should know the dimensions of a salmon egg, but you know, they're like eight millimeters or so wide, whereas our, uh, would be my best guess, 
But these marine fish larvae, they're average. That was perfect. Was it eight? Yeah. Oh, yeah, thanks. Nice job. <laughs> but uh, about a millimeter is uh, the average diameter of a, a fish larva. So you could actually pack, and if you did the 3D thing, you'd, you'd find you could actually pack like 50 eggs, 50 marine finfish egg into a salmon egg. Wow. And that, that difference in size really changes how the fundamental, fundamentally what they're eating, what size their food is. Because now you're feeding something, you know, fish can only eat what they can fit in their mouth. So if you have these smallest vertebrates, they have to have these just little microscopic things to eat. So, um, and we've been doing that this for uh, also for about 100 years, but really only well since the 60s. So what, what people re realized in the 60s that really transformed things is that, um, is that we could use uh, cultured uh, zooplankton. So these little critters that would normally be found in the water that are like copepods. So in nature, fish larvae are eating copepods. And those invertebrates are eating plankton, right? Uh, phytoplankton. So they're mm -hmm. in the in wild, you can imagine the fish larvae are floating around kind of surrounded by all these little copepods swimming around. They're surrounded by this this green microalgae. And we're, what we're trying to do is replicate that. But the problem is we're not very good at growing copepods. Uh, people have tried and that the challenge there is really just it just doesn't scale well. The economy is just not very good for copepods. So you need these these really large systems just to put out very small quantities of them, and, and you just we just can't really afford to do that. But nutritiously, they're great for fish larvae. So uh, you have to find something else that is not a copepod that you can culture easily instead. Exactly. Yeah, that's where people really started. That that was how the like marine finfish cult you know aquaculture really started was finding things like rotifers. So rotifers are another um, like an estuarine invertebrate that you would find in estuarine waters is kind of swimming around with copepods. But the, the difference is rotifers were able, we were able to culture in captivity really very densely. So the, the females actually lay eggs and then those eggs become females. And, and uh, that's one of the properties that is this asexual reproduction that happens pretty rapidly. They have a pretty short life cycle and they, they produce, um, they replicate at very high rates. So rotifers are, we can grow them, we can grow them at, at pretty high, in very dense systems, and that allows us to then grow fish larvae. And then there's another one, brine shrimp. So if you've ever you know, seen sea monkeys marketed to kids at the store, that we use, those come, those come in little eggs, and those eggs are, you know, again, around a millimeter big. No, not even that. Sorry, much smaller than that. Um, but they're these little, you know, they look like grains of sand and you'd, you'd place, put them in salt water and then after 24 hours they hatch and there's little swimming invertebrates. Well, those sea monkeys, uh, we call them brine shrimp in aquaculture and, and they're, they make for really good food for early feeding marine fish larvae. They're a little bigger than rotifers. You usually start with rotifers and then you transition them onto artemia. And, and every species is a little different. You know, I said we have 19 species, but, but that's kind of the general recipe. And, and some species won't take either one, and then, then you get in a real big challenge. But So they would, in the wild, be eating copepods, if I'm understanding you, but we can't culture copepods very well, so we're feeding them these rotifers or um, brine shrimp. And so do they have the same nutritional content that copepods would have? Yeah, no, really good question. Yeah, so that that was that's been a, recognized as a as a, one of the many challenges that we face feeding fish larvae. So step one was just finding something they'd eat. You know, which we're taking these animals and and putting them into tanks and just having it something that they, they eat and eat and kind of grow on um, was as was uh, you know as a first cut kind of the best we could do. But definitely, like if you can 
in systems where we've been able to feed larvae copepods, even though it's not economic, we see it they grow way faster. We see lower rates of um, malformations, so you know animals that that just don't quite develop um, normally because you know, this is largely nutritionally based. They're just not getting adequate nutrition, and so we're we're trying to solve those issues. You know, one strategy is to say, well. If we know that fish larvae do really well on copepods, but we know that they don't do quite as well as on rotifers, for example, what we can do is we can we can evaluate, look at the copepods, and you treat that as kind of a gold standard, and look at exactly what are they made out of and what properties do they have, and and how do rotifers differ? And so you know, I, in my PhD research, for example, um, I was looking at taurine. Taurine is this; uh, it's like an amino acid. Uh, it's in things like Red Bull. Um, the science actually on that says that you don't get a lot of benefit from uh, taurine if you're doing uh, a time trial unless you have suffered some sort of cardiac damage in your life. Just a little bit of Red Bull. I want someone to take away <laughs> something useful from this podcast. So, <laughs> so I, uh, just so you know, it's the caffeine that probably does the most. But the point is that, that it, uh, both cats, uh, cats are, have this obligate um, nutritional, they're nutritionally obligated to eat taurine. If not, cats will actually, um, they can, uh, you know, they're not going to grow and develop, but they can develop cataracts. They can actually get really ill if they don't have taurine. Mm -hmm. uh, humans were able to take other amino acids and turn that into taurine, so we don't have that requirement. So for a long time, I don't think people really appreciated that in, in carnivorous fish. They, they just assumed that we were there, or for whatever reason, it got lost, that the, really the importance of this, this um, non-traditional amino acid, taurine, it's a sulfur amino acid. Anyways, that my point is, it was it was really rich in copepods. It was like one percent of their dry weight, uh, and that, that's very high. That, and, and then um, and when you compare it to rotifers, we couldn't even measure that mm -hmm. that nutrient in rotifers. And so what we what we realized was, well, hey, we if we can get that taurine into the rotifers, we can we can actually get the fish growing more like they would on copepods. And and so I did a lot of my PhD work doing that. That that then then you get in a whole another suite of challenges. So, and I don't know if you're ready, I don't know if you're ready for that. So you know now we're growing fish, we're growing things to feed things. To, you know, um, which is unusual. We don't this that's not done a lot. This idea of live feeds. You know, rotifers and artemia. We're actually we have a whole separate crop just to feed our fish. And now we're talking about trying to manipulate that that initial those live feeds so that they're more nutritious. And so, you know, in order to do that, what I've done is um, looked at microencapsulation. So, can uh, the, you know, if taurine just dissolves into the water, it's a water-soluble nutrient. And there's a whole suite of water-soluble nutrients. So, things like vitamin C, uh, most of the B, all the B vitamins are water-soluble. Uh, free amino acids. So, a lot of things that are very essential for things to grow. Um, I mean, nutrients that are essential for, for animals to grow, uh, but they're water-soluble. So, you know, we don't think about this when you're feeding pigs. You just put food in a trough, the pig eats it, and then they grow. But we're working in an environment where the animals live in water, and so it's a very different environment, and the food has to transition that environment. So what happens is uh, if you put taurine in the water, the rotifers can kind of drink it, but it's not very efficient. And, uh, and our goal is to get them to like 1% of their dry weight. So that's a, that's a lot of taurine. And people have found if you just dump gobs and gobs of taurine in the water, you can get rotifers eventually up to that level. But what I found is you can actually encapsulate uh, that taurine into a, a little microcapsule. And in this case, it's liposomes. I didn't invent them. I just adapted them from pharmaceutical use and with the help of colleagues.
But what we, what we found is that, you know, if we encapsulated these water-soluble nutrients, they, we could feed them directly to the, um, these live feeds and make them look more like copepods from a nutritional standpoint. And, and it's really efficient. And it's about, took about 60 times less of that, of taurine when compared to just dumping it in the dumping water. In. Yeah, yeah, so that's a lot less, um, well, it's probably more cost-effective, right? Yeah, it should be more cost-effective. I mean, you have to, the, the micro-encapsulation method is, um, you know, needs scaling. So that's kind of where we're at with that. But presumably, if you could scale that technology and that, you know, when, once that happens, it would be a way of doing it with, uh, without the added step of just dumping that in mm-hmm. and, um, and with a much less usage of taurine. Uh, for your animals, but I think taurine isn't terribly expensive. It's when you start getting into more uh, to other water-soluble nutrients, things like vitamin C, your B vitamins. I mean, hypothetically, you could encapsulate this this full little water-soluble uh, package and and make your your rotifer look from a water-soluble nutrient standpoint just like a copepod. And they've been doing that with lipids for a long time. They're much easier to study. So. So there are products out there for for changing the rotifers and artemia from a if you've you know thought much about um, essential fatty acids from these are these are lipid um, based nutrients and they they survive the water much better because oil and water don't mix so it's really it's pretty it's a lot easier to get oils into into fish than it is to get water soluble things into fish uh, just the nature of the challenge. Is that so. something that um, you keep talking about it in terms of rotifers, but is that something that is also being studied and worked on getting these microencapsulated taurine in, into brine shrimp as well, or is this just specific to rotifers? Yeah, yeah, so uh, yeah, and I think more broadly speaking, taurine is my example. We used it as a kind of an example nutrient, but really a whole suite of water-soluble nutrients. So, um, uh, but yeah, it's not just rotifers. We, we actually have found that you can use these same microparticles for uh, elevating the concentrate, essential nutrient concentrations of Artemia as well. And, and um, they, weren't, they weren't as deficient in taurine, so it's probably other nutrients that they would really have more applicability to. But, um, but yeah, certainly like the capacity is there. But the, the real next step is that we, we kind of want to get away from rotifers and Artemia. So... Um, you know, we, 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 it, if you have to grow something to feed something that is actually your target crop, <laughs> that's pretty inefficient. And then that, now you add the fact that you're growing living organisms. Rotifers are this, it's like a continuous culture. You know, it's almost like a sourdough start. You have to take a little bit and put it in the water and then that multiplies. But, you know, it changes it over time and you can have just like your sourdough start might you know, if you don't take care of it well, it'll it'll crash, and you can't use that in the next loaf, and you have to go, you know, find a new start. Literally, my start during early COVID. <laughs> yeah, that's you know that just happens, and that's part of working with living organisms. And so, with rotifers, we we definitely see that. I mean, people if you people that are live feeds managers live a very stressful life when their whole hatchery, what they've got, you know, thousands if not millions of fish, depending on the. Uh, you know, if you're talking about fish larvae on hand that they're they're responsible for feeding, you know, it takes a lot of staff just to grow these rotifers. So you'll have these huge tanks in a hatchery and, and a few staff that are just designated for just growing the rotifers. And so that's a huge investment on the part of the hatchery because they have to pay these technicians. They have to have the footprint. They have to have the, you know, the energy to and, and feed inputs and all this stuff. 
And then, and yet, at any day, it could just crash. They could just be gone tomorrow. You know? Gosh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, usually it doesn't happen like that. Usually, what you see, a, you'll see a dip one day. It's like, oh no, they're yeah. not pre-producing like they were two days ago. And then all of a sudden, you're stressing out. And so, um, so you know, really, hatcheries want to get away from that. And what, ideally, we would feed them a prepared feed like we do for juvenile fish. You know, with juvenile fish, we just put everything the fish need into a small particle. And, and then feed them that. So fish food are, are, are these extruded feed based feeds, but they just look like a bunch of kind it's of like brown the dry pellets. like pellets. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So ideally we'd be able to do that with fish larvae, but the, and we do, there are some commercial options for like late stage larvae, but, but right now we're still pretty dependent on the idea that we're going to have, you know, a rotifer phase and our, then they grow, the fish grow, then they're able to eat artemia. So they, we transition them onto artemia and then eventually they're on Artemia for a while. We, f- we co-feed them with the Artemia and some, some dry diet for a while, this artificial feed. And eventually that we, they become feed trained and then they're on this artificial diet. And then life gets easy and less expensive. But what, we, what we're just not able to do yet is come up with a, a microparticle that we could just feed to them early on. And, and that's what, a big area of my work. So is that like a size? thing or is that because it's hard to get something that's water soluble into a dry feed particle yeah. or yeah it's it's absolutely like a size issue so the scale is everything in this case you know um the challenge is is uh, we're, we're feeding these smallest vertebrates on earth so they, they have to have the smallest fish feeds on earth <laughs> and and here's the the you know for the mathematicians out there it's a surface area to volume challenge is what we're really dealing with so if you've got a really large uh, particle then it has a relatively small amount of surface area so the outside of the the particle is um, is relatively minor with comp- when compared to what's on the inside. So think about it like a basketball. If you had a actually, what I like to do is think about a sugar cube. So if you take a sugar cube and you drop it into water, it takes a while for it to dissolve, right? You'll be sitting staring at that sugar cube for mm-hmm. quite a while. But if you take um, if you take sugar in the raw, which is like more crystalline, that dissolves faster. And then better yet, if you took powdered sugar and put it in the same glass, it's gone like that because the particle size are small and. And so the surface area with respect to the volume of those particles is so much smaller that, that it, um, it dissolves faster. It, um, they'll, you know, uh, those water-soluble components enter the water faster. And so that's what's happening as we move from a juvenile, uh, juvenile feed that, you know, you can, um, these are like the size of salmon eggs. You can imagine a salmon egg is not too different than the size of an extruded feed, which we now know are eight millimeters is <laughs> a salmon egg size. 8.3, but you were close enough. Okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so I mean, when it, but the particles that I'm talking about, these that you would feed, it might replace, used to replace artemia, for example, if we could replace artemia, those particles, they just look like dust. You look, you would have a handful of just dust and, and they, they would be microparticles. Um, and largely, you can actually make them by just making dust. So one way they make them is they just take fish feed, stick it in a grinder, grind it all up, and then take that, and um, they'll catch it on a, uh, like a sieve, so to a screen that's just the right mesh size to sort out just the particles that you want. Um, and they'll feed, and that's what a lot of commercial micro diets are. They're just kind of ground, uh, larger fish food that's been ground up, and we feed that to the fish. But you can imagine like that comes with a whole s- suite of problems. Uh, so, you know, 
one of the problems is that these fish larvae, they're, they're not juvenile fish. They, they, they can't swim as fast. The world gets more viscous the smaller you are. So forget, it's called the Reynolds number in oceanography. And if someone who's interested could go look up the math of the Reynolds number. But basically, if, if you're like a little critter living in the ocean, it feels like you're swimming around in jello. And if you're a big critter, you know, if you're a blue whale swimming in through the ocean, uh, the, the world feels like air to you. You know, it's very not viscous. Um, and so, um, you know, the, if these fish larvae, they, they just don't have, they're, they're fighting viscosity. Uh, and then they've got, there's turbulence in the water because it's more viscous, it's gonna be moving them around. You know, just a little um, uh, flow uh, movement, can, can, they're more subjected to that. And then they're trying to identify feed and, and then swim to that feed and get it. And they're just not that great at it yet. You know, they're, and they're, they're, I think they're better than we, when we look in the tank, we're kind of like, oh, they're horrible at it. They're actually not, they're, they're more sophisticated than we give than You know, I think a lot of people give them credit, but nonetheless, they have a lot of, they've got this big challenge. And so, you know, when we put, when we try to give them these artificial diets, one thing that happens, it just all sinks to the bottom of the tank. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, just my colleagues at, at Hubs and I had done some back of the envelope calculations and we think about about 5% at best of the food that you put into the tank at these early, early stages is it's actually, actually eaten. getting eaten. Yeah. Yeah, that's... And so the rest of it's great. sitting on the bottom, losing its, you know, water-soluble nutrient to the water column, just leaching as we've talked about. So when I said, you know, these water-soluble nutrients are lost, Mm-hmm. because the particles are small at the small scale. It's, it's, um, what's, what's happening to those nutrients is they're, they're being lost from the diet, which we're trying to feed to the fish. You know, so the, our, our, our feed is less nutritious for the animals because some of the stuff's been lost. Um, and then the other problem is that those nutrients are going into the water, and now we've got a, a waste problem. So that water now is, has nutrient, is loaded with nutrients, and then those nutrients can be used by things that we don't want, like you know, vibrio, bacteria, you know, pathogenic bacteria could be utilizing that like kind of soup now that the animals are swimming in because their food is losing the nutrients to the water. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of where, that's the world I live in, <laughs> thinking about these challenges and like how how can you better, how do you, can you make diets for, for these microscopic animals that um, that can survive this challenge of passing through the water and, and not impact our system. So we're not creating a, a soup that the fish larvae swim in. And it, it's, you know, it's relatively, uh, it's, it's a big challenge. And we've got a, a couple different uh, ways of attacking this, I guess, so to speak. But, but, you know, one way is to make live feeds better and more efficient. And then you need less of it. You can get the fish through that better. And then the other strategy is to be able to grow copepods better. So that's that's not something I've worked on. I mean, I've grown some copepods in my day, but but really there are um, there are whole groups that are just saying, well, what if we found the right copepod that uh, replicates fast enough, and that we find the right culture conditions that can make them more efficient? And that's that's a whole other area, and uh, and maybe that'll happen. I'm you know a little skeptical that that will happen in the at least in the near term, but but. Um, and then the third option is coming up with a formulated feed, an artificial diet that, that uh, you know, doesn't sink as fast. So that's one of the issues that the fish can't eat it. It sinks faster than they can physically grasp it. This thing that I've been talking about, losing their water-soluble components, that we call that nutrient leaching. So if we can come up with diets that are more neutrally buoyant and that are don't lose all, you know, not prone to leaching or less uh, leaky, um, and, uh, and then they have to be digestible. And, and then finally, they have to have the things that the fish need. You know, they have to have a whole suite of different nutrients. 
that um, just like you know any other animal does they, they have their nutrient requirements so we have to meet those needs but we have to solve these kind of physical problems to get there that sounds like a lot that sounds like a whole slew of uh, <laughs> problems and things to consider yeah um, this is why it, uh, it's like I have a tough tough time with an elevator speech for my talks I'm if you were in an elevator and I've got 30 seconds to break this down to you like <laughs> don't normally get to that depth so it's nice to have a podcast to like break it down and like yeah it, there are, it's like it's about the third layer down you finally get into the stuff that I do <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah I also think yeah. people in general don't even realize how much goes into fish feed and all of the thought and the research and the complexities that are behind it. It's nice to have a, a in-depth explanation of that. Do you want to talk about other projects that you have going on? Yeah, so, um, yeah, geez, uh, lots going on right now. I think some of the, just uh, some of the key projects that I, that I wanted to highlight. Uh, one, um, we just got this uh, National Sea Grant um, fund uh, aquaculture award to, to look at some um, ways of improving microencapsulated diets in the, that are kind of similar to what's on the market now so we're working you know that some we're taking what's what's the most successful at present and then we're going to try to adapt that using some some kind of fun new technologies and that's uh, that's working with uh, a main company Kingfish Maine and then um, as well as my partners down at Hub Sea World Research Institute. So that'll be fun. That's all going to be directed at California or Seriola, so um, uh, California Yellowtail and uh, Amberjack. Uh, and so, uh, and then we've got a, another project um, which is uh, funded by NOAA, but to actually develop these really novel microencapsulated diets. So very different than anything that's out there. Um, we basically, we're taking these, li I mentioned liposomes and how we really we're able to use those for enriching rotifers. But what we said was, hey, can we just put those into an inert particle, a carrier particle, because they're so good at retaining their water-soluble nutrients, and then put other stuff in there the fish need. And so what we call those complex particles, my advisor, Chris Langdon, um, uh, coined that term, but these, these complex particles, you're taking two particle types and, and putting them together in like a super particle. And uh, so this is um, this is what one thing that uh, that we're working on now. You know, we're also doing some work with lumpfish, uh, trying to develop um, hatchery feeding protocols for these cleaner fish. Uh, so in, in you know salmon are prone to getting sea lice, and in main waters we're not able to allow to use any sort of chemical therapeutic um, you know uh, um, pesticide, and so. Um, at, by, by because of that, and we wouldn't want to anyways. But the one of the uh, there's kind of limited options. You can physically remove them, and they have some means of doing that through kind of like a jet removal process. But but we're looking at um, well, and then uh, the Norwegians and have really taken these lumpfish. They're a little cleaner fish, really cute, and they eat the sea lice off the salmon. You just put them in the pen with the salmon at a certain rate. Um, and so we're, we're working on developing some nutritional protocols for feeding lumpfish. And down the road, I'm hoping to do some diet manipulation with that species as well to kind of solve, solve this uh, biocontrol of sea lice issue or it, make it more efficient, I should say. And then we're working with this, uh, we're with another main company right now. They're a, they're a startup, uh, Phytosmart, and they're actually um, growing a microalgae that's really rich in DHA and, um, and land-based systems. And then they've got a very nice process for preserving those microalgae cells where uh, it's uh, done in a way that, that doesn't um, leads to very low levels of 
kind of oxidation loss of, um, of some key nutrients. And it's starting to get in the weeds there, but, but uh, we think this, this will be very nutritious for early staged fish. And we're, we're testing that as a, both a, an enrichment product for live feeds and, um, and as well as uh, they make a, a flake out of it. And we're testing that as a, a feed supplement to get these essential uh, fatty acids um, to early stage fish larvae. And we're testing that actually in both um, a marine and a freshwater system right now. So. Um, anyways, and, and in a suite of other things, but those are just some kind of key, um, key projects that I've got going on right now. You sound busy. Yeah. <laughs> you sound very busy. Yeah. And podcasting. And podcasting. Now this is a highlight. This is really fun. Um, that's awesome. So what does that mean moving forward next? Is it, uh, I guess for the aquaculture industry, is that like bringing things to scale or? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, ultimately, uh, there, I think there's a few like short-term impacts, and, and one is that we hope that uh, that one these um, some of these microparticles that are being developed end up in, in commercial hands. So even sorry, even in the shorter term, we we've learned a lot. You know, these um, these have been a really effective research tool, where we're able to now say, well, what what level of taurine do we need target in in these live feeds? We can run nutrient requirement studies and. Um, we've been able to do that now with a couple different nutrients. So as a research tool, very, very helpful. And then those nutrient requirements can then be tailored for specific species um, or, or feeding protocols can be tailored for certain species. So we're, there's some, you know, kind of immediate application. The slightly longer term is that we're hoping to get some, some of these microparticles commercialized uh, by working with commercial partners and, uh, and get them into the hands of, of the hatcheries so that they can improve their their feeding uh, techniques and technologies, and then um, in the you know in the long run, we, what we really would what I'd like to see is that we move away from um, from brine shrimp. You know, I think rotifers is, would be a little lofty of a goal in my career. Well, who knows? I guess, but if we can develop microparticles that at least you know reduces has a significant reduction of that that brine shrimp phase, that would be that would be great for both the hatcheries and for um, you know globally. A huge amount of the aquaculture industry is really reliant on the the Great Salt Lake um, for our artemia. I mean, that's where m the majority of that's still coming from, and uh, and it's kind of scary to have like such a large dependence on one natural resource. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are doing some good things to um, to you know make sure that fishery is very sustainable in the long run, kind of protecting the Great Salt Lake through a variety of means. But to be able to move away from that and allow the industry to grow without that reliance would be a, a big thing that I hope to accomplish in the longer run. And plus that would let hatcheries, you know, um, they wouldn't need this huge live feeds department. They could employ those people to do other things, you know. That's awesome. I think that's a, a pretty good wrap up point, actually. Um, I do have, one or two more questions. Do you yourself eat California yellowtail? Oh yeah, no, I love sushi. Broadly speaking, I wish I ate it more. I haven't, I haven't found my like go-to sushi place. I've only been in Maine for about a year and a half, so. Mm -hmm. um, but it is like uh, if you haven't had uh, hamachi or kanpachi, um, I highly recommend it. They're like kind of a fattier uh, marine fish. Anyways, really. Um, Nice. I, I, I like it where it's just on a little simple bed of rice, you know. Great. You yeah. passed the test. That was <laughs> that was the correct answer. Oh, yeah. Okay. Good. Um, Matt's also a mountain biker, so my next question is not aquaculture <laughs> related. But uh, what uh, is your favorite kind of mountain bike? 
Oh, I own, so like, I, I kind of joke sometimes, like I'll probably never own exactly the car. I, you know, if you like can imagine buying your dream car, like, yeah, I'll probably never get that. You know? That's fair. But, um, but I have exactly the bike. I have a, a Trek uh, Remedy 27.5 and uh, I love it. It's awesome. It's so fun. It does everything I can do and it's made me a better rider and I have like a lot of fun just if it want, if I want to drop off a rock, it drops off rocks. If I want to jump over something, it jumps over something. So, um, yeah. And then if you just want to go for a light pedal, it's really an efficient pedaler, which I like pedaling. So, yep. Um, that's my, nice. my actually that's have exactly awesome. the bike and it's battleship blue, which if you knew my favorite color, it's battleship blue. Battleship blue. That's <laughs> awesome. Well, now it is. <laughs> Amazing. Great. Well, thank you for taking time to be on the podcast and talk a little bit about uh, larval nutrition and finfish. Something yeah. I think a lot of people don't even think about. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thanks for getting me on people's radars and some uh, new topic for them to, to consider. I think it's important work and I've really enjoyed uh, being here today. So good luck with your podcast. Thank you.